everybody who does this work should be checking in with a therapist from time to time because you don't know how it's affecting you, but it is affecting you. And it's like the coronavirus curve. Like by the time you realize it's affecting you, you're too late. You need to start the work beforehand because that's the way that trauma works. Hello, and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at the J School, and I'm joined once again by my co-host and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. And Lisa and I are coming to you today from our homes once again. Lisa, how are you doing today in our second month of COVID quarantining? Hi, Abby. You know, I'm good. I'm safe. My family's safe. So we're some of the lucky ones. And um, I've been spending a lot of time trying to find little pockets of joy among all this madness. And this month, one of those joys was this amazing Zoom conversation that I had with CNN's Clarissa Ward. Right. Clarissa, who really is an exceptional international correspondent, attended our DuPont ceremony back in January when she and her CNN team won a baton for their reporting on the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi. And a few weeks ago, Clarissa was gracious enough to once again fit us into her busy schedule, this time joining us for a Zoom Q&A all the way from her home in London. Yeah, I think we caught her somewhere between caring for her stir-crazy toddler and reporting on the pandemic, all while being a couple of months away from giving birth to her second kid. Yeah, she has really done it all. She's reported from around the world for Fox, ABC, CBS, and now CNN. And she's been based all over, too, from Iraq to Lebanon to Beijing to Moscow, all of which, by the way, she's just written a book about, aptly titled On All Fronts. And she's a multiple DuPont Award winner. She won her first DuPont Award in 2013 after sneaking into Syria by herself for CBS with um, just a little handheld camera. Not to mention, she also, apparently, as we learned in the book, once had a gig as Uma Thurman's stand-in on the set of Kill Bill. So I think it really is safe to say that Clarissa has done it all. Right. And one of the other reasons we really wanted to bring you this conversation today is because as a conflict reporter, Clarissa has not only seen, but she's also experienced her own fair share of trauma. And we think that now more than ever, it's important for our listeners to learn some of the strategies that journalists like Clarissa use to cope. Yeah, you know, just all of her firsthand knowledge on that topic was so interesting and relevant. And and really candid. So we have a lot to, lot to listen to. Let's get started with a conversation hosted by yours truly with CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. And as always, it's an edited conversation. So good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, Clarissa. What's happening in London? I'm very much hoping that my toddler is not going to make a cameo. Uh, but if you do hear any high-pitched screaming, it's not a, a torture dungeon that I have. It's just a very overactive two-year-old on lockdown. And I just got home about half an hour ago. I was doing some live shots on the street talking about how the UK has been actually misrepresenting inadvertently, it's death toll, um, categorizing it as being 52% lower than it was because they were only counting people dying in hospitals. Yes, I think that's happening everywhere. It's certainly happening in the United States. Um, but we're gonna start, we're gonna talk about COVID reporting um, and we're gonna talk about 
things you might say that could help our students as they're trying to report in this difficult time. But um, I just wanted to start by talking a little bit about your DuPont award-winning reporting that won this past year. And that was uh, the coverage for reporting on the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Turkish officials here are convinced that the killing of Jamal Khashoggi was a premeditated murder, and they're now telling CNN that they even believe the Saudis went to the extent of sending a body double here to pose as Khashoggi, leaving the consulate in an attempt to cover up the killing. CNN has obtained exclusive surveillance footage. It is part of the government investigation, and it appears to Sir Allison just that. At first glance, this man could almost pass for Jamal Khashoggi, and that's the idea. These are the last known images of Khashoggi alive, moments before he entered the Saudi consulate. Take a look. Same clothes, same glasses and beard, similar age and physique, everything except the shoes. But a senior Turkish official tells CNN that the man on the left is a body double, one of 15 Saudi operatives sent to kill Khashoggi and then cover it up. Extraordinary. Um, this was just, as I said, an extraordinary team effort. Uh, there were a series of scoops. This was one of them. And you, can you talk us through a little bit about the reporting in general and how this particular piece of reporting came to light? So, you know, when you're doing a story like this, it's always really tough because you're relying on sources. You don't have the ability to go and see for yourself exactly what happened. And that can be very frustrating. I was very fortunate in that I had attended a small conference about Saudi Arabia about two months before Jamal Khashoggi was murdered. And there were some very interesting and very important people at this conference. I got to spend a couple of days talking with them. Sometimes these conferences are a total waste of time, I'll be honest. This one was particularly useful because it was small. And if it's small, then it is usually a really good chance to do some serious networking and develop sources and develop relationships with people who can help inform your reporting. So definitely that was hugely beneficial to me when it came time to try to get to the bottom of what had happened to Jamal and what was being done about it. This was a team effort and I really can't emphasize that enough. I mean, we had something like eight different reporters on this story, three from Istanbul. We had people in Saudi Arabia. We had people in you know, Washington working that beat. We, ha I mean, it was a huge collective. Um, and I think particularly our international diplomatic editor, Nick Robertson, who actually collected the award with me, who has been going to Saudi Arabia now for, you know, two decades and has excellent, excellent connections. Um, he was very much instrumental in getting some of those scoops with regards to the body double scoop, which was kind of the piece de resistance, uh, you know, and keep in mind, this was like a long slog. Uh, normally with a story, it's like you go in, you go hard, it's a few days of craziness and then it starts to taper off. With Jamal Khashoggi, it took so long. It was really weeks and weeks and weeks of reporting to really find out what happened to him. And, and that requires a lot of stamina. But our Istanbul bureau chief, um, Gul Tusus, who has like amazing contacts 
uh, with elements of the Turkish government, was able to obtain this video from a very good source. As I'm sure many of your students already understand, that's really just like the first step is obtaining the video. Then you have to do what you can to try to verify the authenticity of the video. Then you have to work out from a storytelling perspective how you use the video in a sort of coherent way because not everybody is following the minutia of the news the way we are as journalists. So you have to kind of lay it out as, and especially with this story with the body double, I wanted this to be like, you know, you're watching an Agatha Christie sort of, you know, because it had that feel to it, like this sort of cinematic quality of like, you cannot make this up. Um, and it really, and it really did, you know, it nailed the, the fact that this had been a premeditated thing, the fact that they had And that was, I mean, that, I think the reason it got so much attention was exactly because of that, because the Saudis had really been trying to perpetuate this narrative that yes, it appeared that Jamal was dead, but it was completely inadvertent and it wasn't supposed to happen and he had just gone in and then there was a ruckus and somehow he had been killed. Well, when you have someone on that plane, one of those 15 Saudi operatives who's been sent to be a body double, I think it's pretty safe to assume at the very least, it was certainly intentional that he was never going to leave that consulate you could make the argument, I guess, that they wanted to rendition him back to Saudi Arabia. But whatever it was, it was certainly premeditated. Can you talk, I don't know how granular you can get, but can you talk a little bit more about how you corroborate something like, and you get video like this, it feels like this is some kind of political thriller movie. How crazy is this idea that they brought someone in? So yeah. what, what steps do you take? Because if you get this wrong, oh my God. No, I mean, and, and, and everyone's really cognizant of that. And it's very important to remember that while the Saudis were definitely the bad guys in this narrative, the Turkish government had its own agenda too. Right. And, and they sort of happened to be on the, on, the, on the side of good in this instance, but they were definitely releasing this information in a piecemeal way that was very much political in terms of, of what their objective was, that was designed to humiliate Saudi Arabia and to kind of prolong the agony, as it were. So you can't just take at face value, oh, Turkey says this video is that. But what we did, you know, you start to look at things like the timestamps on the video, right? Because, because a lot of it was surveillance footage, there were many timestamps. Um, you maybe would reach out to a couple of different, uh, because, you know, it's the same in any government, but there's not just one seat of power within the Turkish government. So if this came from the foreign office, let's say, and I'm not saying it did, then you might go to someone in the security services and try to see if they could verify it with you. Or if you know somebody who's very connected, um, you know, in the judiciary, whatever it is, you try to find someone else within the sort of broader apparatus of, of Turkish authorities who could maybe either um, help you authenticate the video or at the very least authenticate the source behind it. In this case, we had known the source behind the video for a long time, which does go a very long way. And they're absolutely ironclad, solid, legit. Um, so we felt much more comfortable. Then of course you also have to go to the Saudis. You can't go too early, but you do need to go to give them an opportunity to comment. 
in this case, that was sort of a non-starter because really a big problem I think that the Saudis had throughout this whole debacle is that they don't have an effective and efficient communications policy or director or they, they do have people who work in the royal court who liaise with the media, but they're not able to do the kind of ad hoc Hi, sir, can I call you to confirm this? Hello, do you have a response to this? It's sort of, you don't hear from them for days and days or weeks on end, and then you might get some kind of a statement, but probably not, which makes it harder when you're when you're trying to lock down something like this. And then you might also, you know, you probably also go in something like this, sort of an incident to US, so if you have good contact with someone in US security services, you might be like, hey, without showing it to them, this is what we're hearing, we've got this video, does this sound feasible to you? It really depends on how confident you are in the source who gives you the video in the first place and how confident you are in the video. Like I said, things like the timestamps helped us to, to feel more confident that yes, this video was legit. You, you ask somebody about it, but you don't necessarily show it to anyone. Yeah, in general, I tend to err on the cautious side in terms of like sharing or showing video like that. Um, I might, if I feel good enough about the source and whoever I'm talking to feels like it sounds like it's legit, then I'll probably, yeah. And you're obviously not unilaterally deciding, okay, we're ready to go. No, no. And, and, and in this instance, especially because it was, you know, turned into like a huge global fiasco and it was also a geopolitical game of chess and it was a massive story at CNN. You know, CNN is really, really risk averse in general with, with things like, you know, getting a source wrong or getting a story wrong. And for very good reason, we're much too big to, to get something wrong. People are not gonna be indulgent if we get it wrong. So we have a system at CNN, which is called the triad, which can be something of a nightmare in terms of it's, it's a lot of bureaucracy to sort of wade through when you're trying to push a story through quickly, but it works. And basically what the triad is, it's three layers. It's an editor with something we call the row, which is like your basic fact checking, making sure you have the story right. Then you have someone from standards, making sure that, you know, that CNN standards are being adhered to. And then you have someone from legal. So it's like this three-headed behemoth. And putting something like this story through the triad is, yeah, I mean, that's gonna take you a couple of days. There's gonna be multiple conference calls. There's gonna be endless questions about it. Because as I said, you, can, you can't afford to get that wrong. You need to make sure you've got it right. And it can be really frustrating, but it, you feel so much better when the piece goes on air because you just, you know that you've got it right. And it's not just you right. sort of hanging out in the breeze if, you know. <laughs> something were to go wrong. So let me just pivot and, and take you back to the beginning a little bit. Tell us how you got into this business. Did you always want to be a journalist? Yeah. You know, my story's a little more unusual, I guess, in that I didn't, I was really into acting when I was younger. Um, and my childhood was really split between New York and London. Um, and I was like a member of the National Youth Theater here in London. Then I went to college in the U.S. And I was studying like French and Russian and Italian literature. I was always very into languages and travel and storytelling. And then in my senior year, 9-11 happened. 
and it was just a sort of a moment of, you know, just profound change, profound shock, profound epiphany in my case, which was that I knew I wanted to better understand what was going on with the world. I knew I wanted to be more engaged. And I had this sort of idea that I really wanted to be, because I had traveled a lot and my father had lived in Hong Kong from when I was 14. And uh, one of my best friends is uh, Palestinian living in Abu Dhabi. And so I had spent a lot of time in different, in different countries in the Middle East, in the Far East. And I loved languages. So I had this idea that I sort of wanted to act as a kind of go-between almost, between cultures, between different uh, societies and different ideologies and trying in some capacity to act as a kind of communicator. It was all very much full of hubris. Uh, you know, I was 21 years old and I definitely had a steep learning curve. Um, but it was, it was a huge, hugely fortunate thing for me, not 9-11, but to be, to be fortunate enough to have that sense of a vocation that hits you like a lightning bolt and then you just suddenly are like, this is the only thing that matters. This is the only thing I care about. Very specifically, were you immediately drawn to conflict reporting at that age or? Yeah, I was, I was. And I, I don't have a good answer for why I think, look, there's a part of you that will say, oh, I want to give a voice to the voiceless and I want to get to the places other people can't go to. That's definitely always been a motivating factor to me as I, I, I see the place that, that, that no one else gets to. And I'm like, why can't we go there? Why can't we understand that? But then there's also another part that I think a lot of journalists don't talk about as much because it doesn't fit into a nice narrative, which is we like adventure, we like excitement, we like to be challenged in ways that are mind-blowing, we like... Uh, danger. We like danger. I mean, I genuinely don't love danger, um, but I like to be like as close to danger as I can without really being at risk. And I think a lot of us suffer from an inability probably to do a sort of more balanced, normal nine to five office type of job. I mean, for me, when people ask me about anchoring, I'm always like, how could I like wear a dress every day and go into a studio and, and work? I mean, and you know, let's see, after having the second baby, I might be like, you know what? Anchoring's <laughs> anchoring is suddenly looking really great. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not there yet. Do you think you have a different feeling about going to those places, taking the risks? Because you have taken some risks. I mean, mm -hmm. snuck into Syria by yourself when your partner couldn't get a visa and, you know, shot all your own stuff and got yourself caught in the middle of a firefight. Um, do you feel like that's changing at all or has changed over time? I mean, I, what I will say is that the more really dangerous situations I have been in, the more cognizant I am of the fact that life is very precious and that death is not something to be kind of trifled with. I think when you're starting out, you feel a sort of invincibility and there's an arrogance that comes with, with real youth and inexperience. You just never think it's gonna happen to you. The first time when I was 25 years old and I was in Baghdad on a rotation as a producer and our hotel compound was attacked, it was a triple suicide car bombing. 
that was the first time I really thought I was going to die. And it does change you because you realize the seriousness of it and the intensity of it and the idea that you could actually really die. I mean, it's just so wild in that moment. You're like, what am I even doing here? How could I possibly die here? This is crazy. It doesn't make any sense. And then, you know, the moment passes and you don't die. And then you all are kind of excited talking about what just happened. And, and there's a buzz and an adrenaline that comes with having lived to tell the tale. And it can be easy to forget that moment of clarity that came beforehand where you were like, wow, this is real. But the more you experience that, I think the more you are risk averse and I have a much lower threshold. I never enjoyed being caught in a firefight ever. Some people do actually kind of find it really exciting. I always found it petrifying. And, and I still find it kind of petrifying and I really will go out of my way to avoid it. And I think everyone also has different kinds of risks that they're able to take. So for me, I tend to, the kinds of risks I tend to take are based on building relationships with bad guys, but getting to a level of trust where I feel comfortable. So I went into Syria on my own to interview a Western jihadi. I went into Taliban territory with my female producer to spend two days with the Taliban. Those kinds of things, some people are like, that's crazy, that's so dangerous, that's insane. I feel more comfortable with that because I've spent months negotiating that source, building that relationship, establishing that trust. And so it feels a little more in my control. Whereas when bullets are flying, I'm very uncomfortable with that because I can't control any of that mm -hmm. beyond trying to get out of it. So, so yes. And obviously having a kid also does, it definitely changes the calculation. It's not just about you anymore. Right. Talking about the other side of that kind of reporting, which is the trauma aspect of it. And um, that's in two parts. One is what it does to you as a reporter and how you cover things where you are clearly in the midst of a lot of people who are in pain and suffering. Yeah. And are there things that you do when you're, when you're dealing with subjects that are going through those kinds of things? I think covering Syria made me realize that the idea of neutrality is uh, just not really realistic. <laughs> Um, in certain kinds of reporting. And that's why you have, if you're covering a war, you got to have people on different sides telling the different stories. Because if I am covering the rebel side and I am living with these people and sleeping with their families and watching them get mowed down by a far superior army and seeing dead bodies on the side of the road that have been brutally tortured, I can't pretend then to be like on the one hand and on the other hand, right? And I also can't pretend, and, and some people maybe are better at it than I am. I can't pretend not to care. I can't pretend not to be moved by it. I can't pretend that I'm able to just leave it at the door when I come home. And I think that the more honest that you are with yourself about the the way that it affects you and becomes a part of you and becomes a part of your life and the more therapy, frankly, that you do. Um, and I always tell people 
it doesn't matter if you're sad or not or having bad dreams or like everybody who does this work should be checking in with a therapist from time to time because you don't know how it's affecting you but it is affecting you okay and it's like the coronavirus curve like by the time you realize it's affecting you you're too late you need to start the work beforehand because that's the way that trauma works it's not an immediate thing always it sinks into your bones really slowly and insidiously and plays out in your life in ways that you don't expect and you you sort of only learn that as you go along but the more you become self-aware about it the more militant you are about self-care and the more you are realistic about the parameters of neutrality versus how you feel and how you view things and 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 the more you're honest about that the more manageable it becomes but you do also have to draw boundaries and I've never been very good with boundaries. <laughs> and that's something I talk about a lot in the book. And with Syria, in the end, I, I, I did have to say, I had to put in some boundaries because it was too all-consuming. And I was definitely losing myself in the story as well, in the sense of I could no longer say I was objective. I don't think I ever reported anything incorrectly or anything like that. But I was very clearly taking a side, let's say. So what kind of boundaries did you stop reporting from Syria? I, I, it started out that I would take longer breaks between reporting trips. And then, yeah, I, I, I really had to just stop for a while and stop and get, you know, a part, big part of my life because I have built up all these amazing sources in Syria. So every day on my phone, WhatsApp and Telegram and Signal and talking to you know rebels from here and civilians from there and jihadis from here and and it it ended up taking up like hours of my day and you know people would come to me a lot can you do a story in this can you do a story in that can you give a speech on this can you talk about that can you be involved with this charity can you and i really had to slowly start scaling it down um a little bit because it was really it was really threatening my, my personal life in, in so many ways. Yeah. I just wasn't present when I was at home. I didn't feel alive when I was at home. I didn't feel uh, engaged or, kind of, and it's, it's not a healthy way to be. It's not as sustainable. You, there, there, you do have to have boundaries and it's very hard because the fewer boundaries you have, the better your work gets. So you're taking all these risks and your work is amazing and you've got this great access because your sources are good and, and you're putting all your heart into it and your passion. And, and so the work is great, but it's not sustainable. And so, yeah, I think for me, it was really a question of like, okay, there's other stories out there too. Let's do, let's try to do great work on, on other stories. And it, it, it's taken a while, but I feel like, I'm getting better at that. <laughs> and, and I have to say, I was lucky enough to be able to read an advanced copy of your book and you talk quite eloquently about the things you were struggling with. And I think it's, it's a great lesson for when it comes out for people to read about it. And, and yeah, you know, there's still a taboo about this stuff, which is so funny to me in this day and age where we do talk more and more openly about mental health and, and, and trauma and PTSD and all these issues. 
it's still, you get a group of journalists who cover war together and they will never talk about this. They will get unbelievably drunk and make jokes a lot, like gallows humor, um, and can see that, oh yeah, maybe I had a bit of a tough time with that or whatever. But it's certainly, it's only just now becoming acceptable and I think it should be mandatory. Anyone who does this work, just check in with someone and 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 just check in that you're that you're dealing with it that you're processing it and and also remember that different people respond in different ways right. and so it's there is no one size fits all approach to 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 trauma or uh witnessing other people's trauma and even when you're not witnessing it by the way you know i talk to people on our desk and stuff that during the worst of the syrian civil war they're spending 12 hours a day looking at these videos on youtube of whether it's beheadings or massacres that is absorbed somewhere you don't have to be there in person and see it it is absorbed and everybody needs to be mindful of that i think and i think that really um is that is appropriate to the story that's the big story today too as well because there's just so much of what people are seeing that's so disturbing the stories are so disturbing you talked about putting your attention elsewhere and that leads me to ask you a little bit about the story of the day which mm. it's funny because i saw I, I saw an instagram post of yours a couple of weeks ago and you were like shout out to my good college friend who's a frontline doctor and there she is and now this weekend, there was a story about her. My name is Dr. Melanie Malloy. I am an attending physician at Mount Sinai, Brooklyn and Mount Sinai, Queens. I'm on my way to work. We've asked my old friend to show us what life is like on one day in one New York hospital. So I'm picking up my PPE. I'm gonna get some scrubs. I'm going to get mask, face shield, everything that I need to be safe on my shift. For Dr. Melanie Malloy, this is the new normal. I am going to start my shift. The emergency room at Mount Sinai Brooklyn Hospital has been overflowing. I walked in and they said everybody's intubated and it looks like it's true actually. Almost everybody is on oxygen and uh, almost everybody is a COVID patient. How, how did that story come about and is that how you're trying to do this work now? Yeah, so, uh, you know, listen, COVID-19 is a really difficult story to cover. And I think it's particularly difficult if you're used to doing the kind of work that I'm doing. And let's just sort of put aside the fact that I'm pregnant for a second, because that only complicates it. If I wasn't pregnant, I would have zero fear right now about going into a hospital if I had all the proper protective garb and doing those kinds of stories but it's incredibly difficult to get access to these hospitals, particularly here in the UK and in Europe, generally speaking. So you're talking about a war with an invisible enemy and almost no access or very little access to the front lines. In some ways, I feel like as, as, as war correspondents, we're better prepared for this, right? Because doing the work that I've done, I have spent like protracted periods of time where I am not able to move anywhere, where I am confined to a certain space, and I'm used to seeing terrible things happen. It sounds awful. Um, so you, you feel more prepared in that way. 
obviously it's always different when it's playing out in your backyard and across the entire world and there's no place where you can kind of escape to at the end of your six-week rotation to uh, go and decompress because everyone is going through the same thing. So it is unprecedented in that sense. But at another level, I feel like I would be so raring to go with this story if I wasn't pregnant and therefore, you know, more complex risks at hand. So, okay. So you're like, okay, so I can't go to the hospital. Um, Let me just stop you for one second, which is to tell you that our students are not allowed to do that kind of reporting because... Yes. No. And by the way, it's not just your, like some, uh, CNN's done some amazing work. Other networks are not going into the hospitals, at, at least as far as I'm aware. Yeah. And so, it, you know, there isn't a sort of one size fits all approach to this again. So then we have to think of, okay, if we can't get into the hospital, either because we can't get access or we don't feel comfortable or it's too risky, whatever, then how do we do this? How do we tell this story? Um, it happened that my best friend from college, uh, my roommate of four years, is an attending physician at Mount Sinai Brooklyn Hospital. And in the beginning, I just sort of suggested to our, my colleagues at Domestic, because obviously I'm not in New York, I said, listen, I know this amazing doctor. Um, why don't you guys do a story on her? And I can ask if she'd be willing to do it. And she was. And so they said, yeah, CNN said, yes, but why don't you do it? Because it'll be nice for her to be doing these video diaries for you. Because while it's sort of unusual to do a story about a good friend, in this instance, it creates, it can be a positive thing because you have this sort of intimacy and comfort and familiarity that comes with knowing the person who you're doing the video diary for or talking to, having that voice in your head. And so we put these videos together and then I interviewed her at the end of them. And I think, you know, it's a piece I'm actually quite proud of, firstly, because I think it's really nice to celebrate the, you know, in my mind, undisputed heroism of these healthcare workers. And also it was nice to sort of have the human element of my good friend, Melanie is a widow. Um, she has three children. So even when they're not on the front line, so to speak, when they go home, it is incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult, exhausting. And um, I think in a culture which generally has spent years and years sort of worshiping celebrities and influencers on Instagram, it is so nice to see that we are taking this moment to celebrate workers of all different you know, uh, types of backgrounds who are really the people keeping this country going right now. Um, I have one more question, which is if you don't have a friend that you went to college with for four yeah. years, yeah. Uh, do you have any tips on how our students- Yeah, I mean, you know, I approach it as well in the same way. I didn't have any friends who were Western jihadis either, you know, back <laughs> in the day. And like you go out and you find them. So there's chat rooms, there's Facebook groups, there's you call every friend you know to any of your friends have, uh, know anyone who works. I mean, what I did in the UK, for example, and in the UK, I wasn't so much wanting to do a video diary, but I really wanted to put together uh, a strong sense of like how hospitals are operating, how they make the difficult determination of who gets a ventilator and who doesn't. 
I basically put a call out to like all of my friends who grew up here in the UK, who knows doctors, who knows nurses. And then, you know, I WhatsApp like 20 different people and like 10 got back to me and then five actually called me. And then it, it takes time, uh, that kind of stuff. It's very sort of labor intensive, but um, it's really well worth it. And then once you make that connection, you've had that one conversation that you don't even need to be best friends. Now, anytime something happens in the UK, like Boris Johnson, the prime minister is in the ICU. I can, I got three doctors I can message straight away being like, now obviously they're not going to give me personal information about how Boris is doing, but what they can do is provide me with context. So when he was originally sent to the hospital, they said, Oh, precautionary tests. And I'm like, what is that? I don't know what that means. You know, if you know, he has COVID, what tests are we talking about? So it was so useful to have those doctors being like, well, this is what we might look at, a lung x-ray, a CT scan of the chest, et cetera. So it's all about building up those sources. It's the hardest thing to do in journalism. It takes a really long time. You get a lot of doors slammed in your face, but it's so important. Well, and also at the beginning of this chat, you talked about how you went to this conference and it wasn't at a time when you were doing a story about Jamal Khashoggi. It was just, no. this is a time to be able to develop this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So there are a couple people who have, um, who have already chatted some questions and um, you can put them into the chat and we'll ask you them. Um, the one that was a little earlier on when you were talking about the video about the body double, um, have you ever had to deal with quote unquote fake or altered videos that you've encountered? Oh yeah, all the time. And I think the, the lessons mostly learned there happened sort of early on in the Syrian conflict where you were just being inundated. There was no one in there, you know, with the exception of a few of us who had managed to sort of sneak in for a week here or there. In that first year, really, there were very, very, very few people who were able to get in. And so you're relying on social media material. And social media material is notoriously difficult to authenticate. And, you know, I think it's now getting a little bit easier because you see, especially young journalists and Bellingcat and open source information. And, you know, we're learning skills to verify things, to uh, geolocate happenings. And it makes it easier basically to, to authenticate happenings. But we had a few instances that I can remember in the Syrian civil war where a videos, not on my watch or on, on my channel, but where videos were being aired that turned out to be professionally shot to, you know, look dramatic. Right. Um, and so, yeah, you have to be, you've got to make sure if something happened in Hama on this day at this time, I need to see another 10 videos and see watching all of them if i can tell that yeah okay this these shots match the scene matches this is real great so another question we had earlier on is given the constraints on many people including us journalists what international stories would you say aren't getting the attention that they deserve can you name a couple oh i mean there's so many i you know I, between covid-19 and president trump <laughs> It, um, one of them I would say is Idlib, uh, Syria, where you still have three and a half million civilians being slowly crushed by the Russians in the regime. 
and there's no real sense of how it's going to be dealt with or you know and hospitals continue to be bombed and schools continue to be bombed and the world continues to do nothing and and it's difficult because we've now had nine years of this so yes fatigue does set in yes people feel uh, what can we do there's nothing we can do but we do have to keep telling the story um and we do have to keep thinking of ways to hold people accountable. So I would say Idlib Syria is a really big one. I think there's a lot of interesting things going on in India under President Modi. And gosh, we should definitely be doing even more to tell the story of what is happening to Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang province in China. And somebody says, how do we find a way to get all these stories on the air? I mean. Listen, there's only so much people can take, okay? Especially right now, we're dealing with an unprecedented crisis. It's a health crisis, it's a humanitarian crisis, it's an economic crisis, okay? So no one has the bandwidth right now. So a couple of questions about advice to young journalists. One person specifically wanted to understand how you make the switch from producer to correspondent. Uh, look, a producer is, uh, that's how I started out. I think it's the greatest education you can get. You work with an experienced correspondent, you learn from them, you understand how to news gather in the field, how to put together a story. Um, at a certain point, you need to make it known to people that you work with that your, your dream is to be in front of the camera and say, would it be okay if I could start to put together a clip reel? Maybe when we're out on the shoot, could I shoot a stand up here or there? Could I do a live shot on a weekend? Whatever it might be. You have to be willing to put yourself out there. It's the worst part of it, or for me at least, I've always found it's the most uncomfortable part of it because you wanna get that line between being confident but not arrogant and not, you know, and sort of, you know, pushing but not pushy. And it's always, it's a delicate balance. Um, but if you are working really hard and you're making it clear to whoever you're producing for, that your priority is still to be a producer, but this is very much what you want to do in the long run and, and on the side where there's time, can you help me try to make that happen? Then I think most people will try to make that happen. My tip would be if you work with a camera crew that you really admire who does yes. great work, 100%. get them to teach you things, get them to work with you. because 100%, no, no, the camera's gonna be your best friend. And, you know, things have changed a lot as well since I was, you know, up and coming. Uh, I would say now it's like you need to learn how to shoot yourself as well. Um, you need to know the basics of editing. You need to understand the technology of how to feed video to different places. So the demands on young journalists are a lot higher, definitely. Right. But what's exciting about it is that, like, you guys really can one man band a lot of stuff, at least while you're starting out. We're all now, you know, with coronavirus and working at home and stuff, it's like me sitting there like trying to jerry rig a light to this and that. And, you know, you guys are like, please, I've been doing this. <laughs> you're much better at that. And that gives you a huge advantage because you'll find that some of the great stories you have an opportunity to do you'll be on your own sometimes. And, and I have been, and, and you just have to work it out. And it's a great opportunity. Um, somebody is asking a question that's interesting. What are the most difficult things about building a relationship with the quote unquote bad guys? And how do you convince them that you'll give a balanced voice to their stories? That's a real hard task, I would think. 
Yeah, it is a hard task. Uh, weirdly, I feel like it's it's probably one of my strong suits. Um, uh, maybe because I have like a morbid curiosity about understanding bad guys, and therefore I'm much more willing to invest enormous amounts of time in developing these relationships and having conversations uh, with them and hearing them out and listening to them. And, you know, it's a fine line. You don't want to be like, oh, that's fabulous. Tell me about the time you cut someone's head off, right? Like, no, you're not there to like indulge them or to sort of nurture their egos. And you don't have to pretend that you're not offended by them um, sometimes. But what you do have to do is make it clear that you are fair, that you are fair in your reporting, that you will be fair in your treatment of them. And um, you'd be surprised a little goes a long way in that sense. No one, even bad guys, to keep using that word, which, you know, really ultimately is, is sort of confusing, but... Um, no one expects you to do a story on how the Taliban are great, right? They, they know that's not going to happen. But what they, I would ask of you is, if you come, you abide by our customs, you know, kind of leave some of that judgment at the door a little bit, right? And just tell the story of like what you're seeing. Um, so I think if you kind of go in with an open mind and you're asking the right questions and you're making the right contacts and you're giving people a chance to get their point of view across, even if you don't care for it or agree with it, if you're willing to listen to them, listening goes a really, really a long way. And then the trick is, how do you sort of not have them just be pushing their agenda so hard that it overwhelms anything else you would say? In the well, story? you got to, you know, I mean, first of all, you have to challenge, obviously, always have to challenge in an interview, even when it's a little bit scary. Um, and um, you also challenge in, in post-production by, by, you know, okay, he says this. In reality, we know that the Taliban has been responsible for countless civilian casualties. And so you can push back in that way too. Um, and, but, but I do think that's also a good time to like have, what I love about television is so collaborative, have other people who haven't just spent two days with the Taliban have fresh eyes on a piece and be like, okay, now I'm just your, you know, I'm Betty in Nebraska right now. And I'm like, why are, why, why did he say this? Or why didn't we do this? Or, and, and that's really good to keep you focused. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you guys so much. Please stay healthy, stay safe, stay well. Thank you guys. Thank you so much again to Clarissa Ward for taking time out to speak with us. Lisa, that was such an interesting conversation. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's great to hear from DuPont winners, you know, to get their perspective on how they're doing the work. Which leads me to the other reason that we're all so excited and busy here at the Prizes Office, which is the DuPont Award submissions are open today. That's right. We're looking for audio journalism, video, documentary, online, and broadcast reporting. If you believe you have DuPont Award-worthy work, go to DuPont.org and apply. Enter your best reporting now. Our deadline is July 1st. We're eager to help, and we're really eager to see what you've got. 
I'd also like to thank our co-sponsor on this Zoom event, uh, the Dart Center for Journalism and Trauma at Columbia, and we'd like to give a huge shout out to them, especially our friend Executive Director Bruce Shapiro, who's been hosting Zoom webinars for students in these times on all kinds of topics around trauma. So check out the Dart website for those. And if you're looking for something interesting and even provocative to read this quarantine, check out the new excerpt in Elle magazine from Clarissa's upcoming book, On All Fronts, The Education of a Journalist. In this excerpt, she talks about what it was like to report in dangerous and remote places while pregnant. We've posted a direct link to the piece on the On Assignment website. So go to onassignmentpodcast.com and check it out. This episode was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J School grad Christina Shaman from her remote location. <laughs> Yay, Christina. Thank you. We also had help from our DuPont fellows, Carissa Kiambau and Jack Rossiter Munley. And as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. Our music is by Dylan Nowak. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time.